was celebrating Reformation Day today, and Martin Luther was the man who put a big piece of paper on the wall of the door, on the door of the Wittenberg Church. Okay? It was actually bigger than this. You can see pictures of it if you want to go on the Internet. It's kind of interesting. Uh, so it's a big document. This is what he put on the door of Wittenberg. And it was telling of all the things that he sa was saying no to in the church in Rome. Now, what was going on with Martin Luther at the time? Well, Martin Luther was opposing something that was happening in Rome. He was opposing the selling of indulgences. And Stephen referenced those in the teaching this morning. He was opposing the selling of indulgences. Indulgences were uh, these little pieces of paper that you could purchase, certificates that would get you out of purgatory. Pope Leo X had uh, a desire to beef up the construction of St. Peter's Basilica, and it was going to take a long time to build it. In fact, it didn't get completed until about 120 years after uh, Leo was the Pope. But he wanted to beef up construction, and so he started selling, he started uh, initiating the sale of indulgences. And with these certificates, you could buy someone out of purgatory. Purgatory was a place that in Roman Catholic theology you go to uh, to take the temporary punishment for your sins. You can get cleansed of the, uh, the guilt of your sins in the sacrament of penance in the Roman Catholic Church, but you have to go to purgatory to pay for the temporal punishment. So there's where you get flogged until you've paid the penalty in Roman Catholic theology. And so these men were selling these indulgences, and it was basically, you could, if you had enough money, you could buy yourself out of purgatory, or you could buy your friend out of purgatory, or your family member out of purgatory, or you could buy time off out of purgatory. And Luther was particularly uh, incensed by a certain monk who would sell indulgences, and he had this phrase that he would say, his name was Tetzel, and he would say this phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer uh clings, rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And this was how he was hawking these indulgences around town. And it was very, very frustrating to Luther there in Germany. And so Luther brought the 95 theses, put them on the door, and said, no, no, this is not true. Now, at the time, Luther was... Uh, under the authority of Pope Leo X. He was Pope in, uh, in Luther's life. Can you all see his picture there? This was done before they realized that people were three-dimensional. The artists in that time, they were always very flat. He was the Pope in Luther's time. And what was he like? What was Leo looking for in life? Well, when he was elected to the to the papacy, he turned to his brother, and he is reported to have said to his brother, since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. Since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. And so if you were go to go to Rome at that time and you were to see Leo as he was proceeding through the town, as he was uh, being liveried through town, you would first see some, some uh, panthers, you know panthers, the large cats? 
you'd first see some panthers, and then you would see some jesters. You know, jesters, the guy with the funny suits and the, and the, the jingle. They were just clowns of the time. And then, of course, he had a big white elephant also that was in front of him announcing his presence. So he had this big white elephant going in front of him as well. Leo was enjoying the papacy. He wanted to enjoy himself, and he wanted to make a name for himself, and so he wanted to do work on the basilica, on St. Peter's Basilica. And he wasn't a particularly good man. In fact, some of the men that opposed him at one point conveniently died of food poisoning. Very, very conveniently died of food poisoning. Pope Leo wasn't looking for what Martin Luther was looking for. Martin Luther wasn't looking for a white elephant parade. He was looking for something more important than a basilica, than another big, big building. Luther was looking for something, and he was looking, I believe, for the same thing that Abraham was looking for in our scripture lesson this morning. So take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Going back to verse 10, it reads that Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. As I read this verse, I thought, what is the significance of it mentioning the foundations? Didn't Abraham have experience with architecture? It's true that we understand that he lived in a tent probably most of his life, but had he never seen a city with foundations? Now, the scripture tells us that he had seen cities, that he had been in Egypt and Bethel, that he had seen Sodom and Gomorrah, that he had lived for a time in a city called Gerar. Abraham was familiar with foundations. So what is the significance of the scripture saying that he was looking for a city with foundations? The significance is seen in the second half of the verse. A city whose architect and builder is God. 
God was building this city, and its foundations would be somewhat more durable than the, cons- the customary construction of Abraham's time. What is this most durable building material? Matthew 24:35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Luke 6, 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Jesus' words are durable. Jesus' words are durable. So we could see Jesus saying that his words would be the foundation on which Abraham's city would be built. But how do we see this taking further form in the scriptures? What form do we see it taking in the New Testament? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, For this is contained in scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. It's talking about Jesus. And here we see the beginning of the, of the construction being talked about of God's city. I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Okay, so... Jesus is there, his words are there, but we need more than that if we're going to understand the foundation of such a city. We need to understand how this foundation is, is laid out underneath of us and beneath us. How is his word given and poured out beneath our feet so that we can stand upon it and it's firm? Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19, says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a a holy temple in the Lord. 2 Peter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am striving, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So you see the foundation of the city starting to take shape. You have the cornerstone, it's Jesus. You have the apostles, the prophets, the foundation of the city. Do we have a place in this city? Are we part of this structure? First Peter, Second Peter 1, but know this first of all, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So God has taken the cornerstone, Jesus, and he's placed him. And he's taken the apostles and prophets, those which give to us the word of Jesus, and he's laid them as the foundation stones. And then he is building upon it his city, his dwelling place, his temple. It's being built upon it. And you and I are the actual members of it as he places us in place. 
Does Abraham have a place in this city? He knew he belonged there. He knew that he was an alien and a sojourner anywhere else. Does he have a place in this city? It says actually in Revelation 21, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now do you see the connection between verse 9 and verse 10? Come away with me, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who is the bride, the wife of the Lamb? Loud. The church is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he took me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Come and see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He took me away, and he showed me the holy city. Do you see the connection? What's coming down out of heaven? It is the city of God. It is the church that he has built. Coming down out of heaven, being shown to John. And what does it say about this church coming down, this city coming down out of heaven? It says, it says that it had a great wall and twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written on the twelve gates, which were the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel. And it had twelve foundation stones. And whose names were written on the twelve foundation stones of the city? Do you remember? The apostles. The apostles' names were written on the twelve foundation stones. Abraham. These were his spiritual children. The city coming down out of heaven, the church that he was seeing, John was seeing at that time, this was the church, that this was the city of God that Abraham was looking for. These were the foundations that Abraham was looking for. Foundations that had been laid by God. What was Abraham looking for? A city whose builder and architect was God and whose foundation had to be specially recognized because it was a foundation unlike any other. Abraham was looking for the holy city of God, Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, the city with a foundation consisting of the words of Christ as delivered by his apostles. This is what Abraham was looking for. What was Martin Luther looking for? What was Martin Luther looking for? Abraham left everything to find this city. And all he saw of it was a promise. Now, he did see it. Jesus said, Abraham lived to see my day. But he was talking about the resurrection at the time and the eternal life given to, his, to God's children. But what was Abraham looking for as he was sojourning on this earth and he was, he was going from place to place and as he stood in the promised land, what was he looking for? What had, what had he left behind as he was looking for the city of God? He had left behind his family. He had left behind his country. He left everything to find the city of God. What did Martin Luther leave? Do you ever think about that? Do you think he had a comfortable position? As Was he chairman of the theology department? I think, or something like that. He had a very, very nice position. And what he ended up doing was cutting ties with everyone. He left his friends. He left convenience. He left safety. He left comfort, just like Abraham did, 
because he was looking for the same thing that Abraham was looking for. He was looking for the real church. He was looking for vitality, not the imitation vitality of the papal pomp that he had seen so many times. Luther knew that the foundations of the Roman church were not even as strong as the stone that was under the basilica. In fact, they were worse than that. They were, they were foundations of sand. And he knew that it wouldn't hold. And that the church was falling. Because it was being built on men who were deceived and ambitious. Men who had forsaken the teaching of, teaching of Christ as given through the apostles. Luther wanted a church where the members knew the word of God, making them alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luther understood the words of John 6, 63, where Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Luther understood that. And he didn't see it in Rome. And so he left everything. And he made his declaration. He put his foot down. He said, this is where it stops. Well, that's Abraham and that's Luther. But what about today? What are you looking for? What am I looking for? What should our pursuit of God be like? What should it look like? What should it feel like? Well, we look at Abraham and we say, yeah, it was tough for him, but, you know, he was before Jesus' incarnation, and so we can understand the story of his struggles while he was looking for the promise. And then we can think about Martin Luther and we can say, yeah, well, he was, he was after the incarnation and the establishment of the church, but it was an unenlightened time and they didn't have satellite TV. So we could understand that he would have a, a tough time in what he was doing, right? But what about us today? What are we looking for? What does it look like? What is our story? What is your story? I'm going to tell you my story for a minute. I was born in Michigan. And my parents attended a Wesleyan church where they took me to church from my infancy. When I was about 11 years old, my mother, when I was about 11 years old, I started to understand God, eternity, judgment. And I went to my mother and I fearfully told her of my, my worries. And she said, let's pray. And it was at that time I believed on Christ. That was my first confession of faith at about 11 years old, where I said, okay, God, I want you. I understand enough to know that I want you. And so I started attending differently in the Wesleyan Church where I went. And I started doing things as I grew older. I started singing a lot in the church. But as I was singing in the church, I began to see something about the music in the church that I hated. And so I... I couldn't stand it. It was all about performing and, you know, canned music and everybody standing up and singing and, and, you know, everybody patting you on the back. And it was very contrived and very proud kind of a presentation. And I just, I hated it. I got to hate it. And I was very, I was pretty young. And I got to hate it so much that I didn't want to even sing anymore. And pretty soon I just stopped singing. I stopped singing in the church, and I got older, and I went to college, and I went to college to study music, and as I was in the music program at Asbury College, and the vocal music program, 
I hated everything about it. I hated the I hated the performance orientation. All I wanted to do was sing music. I wanted to sing music to God. I wanted to sing to God and worship Him. That's what I wanted to do. And the only thing that appealed to me about the music thing at Asbury was the things that appealed to my pride. It appealed to me in an evil way, in a dark way. But it didn't appeal to me. I was having a crisis. I was there in college, and I was having a crisis. And from a young age, I had... I had appreciated God's word. From a very young age, I had appreciated God's word. And I had thought about being a pastor, even when I was very young. And at a certain crisis time in college, I was, I was alone. I was in the chapel, and I was reading the scripture, and I was convinced that I was to be a pastor and that I should follow God in that vocation. So I changed my major. I started studying theology. I still did some music stuff. I got married. That was great told my wife uh, recently, that was the thing, the thing about college. I really look at it and say, yes, all right. I moved my family to Michigan to be a youth pastor in a Wesleyan church. I was under the care of the District Board of Ministerial Standing. They were overseeing me in my walk toward being ordained. And I went and I met with them. And I had uh, a disagreement with one of the major tenants that, that the Wesleyan church is built on, their theology of entire sanctification. And I told them, I don't believe in this. And you know what? They didn't care. They didn't care. I was looking for vitality. And they didn't care. So I left. My family, I moved my family to Cincinnati. We started, started attending a vineyard church. I was looking for vitality. They, I heard that the vineyard churches had vitality. I worked in the vineyard church there in Cincinnati uh, with a pastor who's kind of famous in church growth stuff now, and he's uh, planting a church now, I think, in Florida. I worked in that church and planted a church out of that church in Toledo, and over a course of 10 years I worked in, that, in the vineyard, and God was working on me through that time, but especially toward the end, he really started working on me. And I started recognizing that the, what the vineyard proposed was vitality, wasn't vital at all. It was contrived. I'm not saying entirely, but most all of it was contrived. I was concerned because they would talk about the Apostles' Creed, for instance. The vineyard would publish on their, their websites the Apostles' Creed, but nobody knew the Apostles' Creed. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know the significance of it. They had uh, Wayne Grudem, who all, many of you know as a uh, kind of a, what, a famous theologian. Uh, wrote a good book on theology. Actually has a dedication to it, I found out yesterday, to Martin Luther in the front, or to Martin Luther, to John Wimber, who was the vineyard uh, leader at the time I was involved in the vineyards. Had, they had Wayne Grudem as their poster child theologian. But nobody really read his theology work. And nobody taught his theology work, and nobody studied about it. But he was nice because he gave validity to us. He gives theological validity, doctrinal validity, you know, doctrinal by association. You understand that? They taught and, and uh, talked constantly about spiritual warfare, but they didn't engage in theological warfare. And that is certainly the most important theological, the most important warfare that happens in all of our lives, we are always constantly being assaulted on the truth of God in our lives, constantly. 
But the vineyards dealt with warfare that didn't have anything to do with that. It had to do with whether you were sick or whether your arm hurt or whether you were demonized or whether something or something or something. Now, of course, I'm generalizing pretty much, but that's how it was, pretty much. Now, I'm vilifying the vineyards, and I want you to know that at the time, I was a pastor who was ashamed, ashamed of the things I had contributed to the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I want you to know that I participated in all kinds of things as a pastor that now I'm just ashamed of. But God was working with me. God was changing me. God was moving me. I left the vineyard. I took some time off from work as a pastor. God began to show me more clearly what I was looking for. And then I ended up in Bloomington. Suddenly, God called me back into pastoring, and I ended up in Bloomington. It's been a good ride so far. What was I? What am I searching for? What am I searching for? I'm searching for the holy city of God, for Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, a city with a foundation consisting of the words of Christ as delivered by his apostles. That's what I'm searching for. I'm searching for what Abraham was searching for. And I'm searching for what Martin Luther was searching for. Have I found it? Yes. In process of construction, yes, I have found it. I have found the church. I have found my theology for the church, and I have found the expression of the church under construction. I have not come to the consummation. I haven't found her completed descending out of heaven. But that will come in another day. How can I describe the last 30 years of my life? Well, it's as if God has been busy posting his theses on my heart. Wicked as it is, and I have been in reformation. And this is what he says he will do. I will put my laws in their heart, and on their mind I will write them. What are you going through? Can you describe what you're looking for? Every spiritual conversation that your pastors have with you at any given day of the week has to do with this question. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? We all seek vitality in our lives. We all are looking for something. That's why we're here. We're all looking for vitality, but we want vitality on our terms. Some of us want vitality. We want life without God's word. And so... Some of us, some of you are enticed by the white elephant parade and the marble-filled basilicas, the predictable pomp and procession, the high liturgy, the bells, the smells, the sacramentalism, the drama, the entertainment, the variety. You're enticed by Rome, by TBN, by the bestsellers in the Christian bookstore, by the mega churches, and I don't mean large churches, I mean churches that are market-driven. All of these things are attempts, attempting to show us signs of vitality. And we want pastors who are soft and not threatening 
and unobtrusive, unintrusive. We want, we want vitality that's flashy. We want this flashy vitality. That's what we want in our lives. Others of us want vitality that, that has life, but instead of not having the word, we want vitality that doesn't have the spirit because the spirit is so unpredictable. So, so we're torn. We don't want the white elephant. We don't want TBN. We don't want the bestsellers list. We, we really like a quiet, musty, dark wood, wood shelf library where we can sit and re- read the nuanced bits of theology with no threat of application, right? Back in our overstuffed chair. We're uncomfortable when somebody invites us to the thesis posting party. You know what I'm talking about? The vitality of the Holy Spirit is disturbing to us. It's okay for Stephen, the martyr, to say to his audience, you're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. Your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You do it just what your fathers did. Your fathers killed all the prophets. You killed the one. They, they killed the one who previously announced the coming of the righteous, righteous one, and you are his betrayers and murderers. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was vital. He was alive with God's word and his spirit. But that's just so extreme. That's just, it's so much, isn't it? Isn't that too much? That's what we think. We want his word, but we just don't want the vitality because that's too much. We want to be part of a nice reformation. A reformation where no one's feelings get hurt and everybody feels good about themselves at the end of the day. And we want pastors who will say to us, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And there are no nice reformations. Reformations are always filled with discriminations, persecutions, anathemas, and excommunications. And burnings. Jesus said in Matthew 10:34, "Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Nice reformation attempts end with no reformation. Now you might be thinking, okay, well, David, you're talking about two types of reformation because you've talked about personal reformation, and then you're talking about corporate reformation and things we do together, and he, and and you know that's that's two different types of reformation. And I'll tell I'll tell you, don't be deceived by that thought. Any reformation that's occurring within you is going to be spreading outside of you as well. It's going to be affecting what's around you. That's why Jesus said, don't think I've come to bring peace. I did not bring peace but a sword. And then he goes on to say what? Do you remember? Your father will love you. Your sister will love you. Your brother will love you. Your husband will love you. Everybody will love you. Is that what he said? Your parents will hate you. Your children will hate you. Your spouse will hate you. Because what's happening inside of you will be evident outside of you, and they won't be able to stand the presence of it. There's no such thing as 
compartmentalized reformation. If it's happening within us, it's happening outside of us as well. We must see the meaning of John 6:63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words, the spirit, the vitality. We talk about the Reformation. We talk about what was reclaimed. We have it on our, on our bulletin, in the front of our bulletin. We have it on our website. But do we have it in our hearts? Do we understand the vitality of the spirit and the word in our hearts? What are you looking for? What city are you looking for? What have you paid? What price have you paid to find that city? What price do you pay in your high school classroom? What price do you pay in your college classroom? What price do you pay on the panels that you serve in school? What price do you pay with your families? What price do you pay at work? Luther paid a price. Abraham paid a price for the vitality of the church, for finding the city of God. What price do we pay? And what are you finding? What are you seeking? What are you finding? I want to close this morning with a quote from Augustine from his work, The City of God, concerning the church. Since then, the supreme good of the city of God is perfect and eternal peace, not such as mortals pass into and out of by birth and death, but the peace of freedom from all evil in which the immortals ever abide. Who can deny that that future life is most blessed or that in comparison with it, this life, which now we live, is most wretched, be it filled with all blessings of body and soul and external things. And yet if any man uses this life with a reference to that other, which he ardently loves and confidently hopes for, he may well be called even now blessed, though not in reality so much as in hope. But the actual possession of the happiness of this life without the hope of what is beyond is but a false happiness and profound misery. For the true blessings of the soul are not now enjoyed, for that is no true wisdom which does not direct all its prudent observations, its manly actions, its virtuous self-restraint and just arrangements, to that end in which God shall be all and all, in a secure eternity and perfect peace in the heavenly city. Let's pray.